passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We are back here on Post Wrestling, joined by... The man we always want to discuss the quarterly reports with. He is always welcome here, but four times a year. Uh, a must-have yes. here at postwrestling.com. From WrestleNomics, he is Brandon Thurston, who is a very extremely busy individual, but he has carved out some time for us here at Post Wrestling. Brandon, how are you today? I'm good. The WrestleNomics headquarters is in the middle of their move. I can't believe that we planned it at the same time that W is doing their Q2 report as they were yesterday. But... uh it was an interesting report. Uh, I, th- I think you were following it as it was happening, right? Yes. Yes, I was uh, following it in real time. Uh, number yeah. one, I, I applaud WrestleNomics and their aggressiveness to go forward with relocating their headquarters as opposed to postponing it to uh, post-COVID. Uh, but off the top, now that we've had two of these, how do you feel about the, the Thursday evening drop of the report and then the earnings call at 5 p.m. Eastern? I'm really struggling with this new time. Um, it's, well, it's, it's, I don't know. The, the documents used to drop at 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. I, when, when I brought this up, I was, I was told that, uh, this is to- actually totally normal for most companies that are publicly traded, that they do it after the market closes. And it was just, it was weird. Uh, I think W was one of few companies that did it in the middle of the day while the market was still trading. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I don't know. I'm okay with it. I'm all, I'm all right with, uh, you know, going into the evening and looking at this stuff rather than having to uh, do, do it during the day. What is your headline takeaway from from this report and how surprised were you? Because I know you did a real extensive study looking at the realities of WWE's finances, even if they run no more live events the rest of this year. So I can't imagine you were uh, shocked, but maybe by just the volume of how profitable they ended up being this quarter. Yeah, WWE really exceeded the profits that the analysts expected. Uh, I mean, the analysts are the people that you hear on the, the conference call asking questions. But um, I, uh, it, it was it's pretty easy for me to to predict revenue, and you know, everybody, you know, myself and and whatever predictions the analysts were making, we were pretty close on that. Uh, at least what's harder for me is figuring out profit because that involves, uh, at least in the case of like net income, knowing stuff about taxes, and I, I get to, you know kind of lost in the calculation. Maybe I'll learn it as time goes on. But I. I, I guess I predicted when I uh, did, did the article a few months ago back in May, you know, sort of unraveling how WWE would, even if it ran no events, would still have its most profitable year ever. Um, you know, I found that uh, the operating income would be something like 70 million. And I found that, uh, you know, net income for this quarter would be, I think, 48. And it was, or maybe I predicted like 49 or something like that. It ended up being 48. Anyway, anyway I was pretty close, but I think that's sort of just a, uh, a, a blind blind squirrel, you know, finding a nut there. But uh, but I think that generally, I, I I do think I'm generally accurate, and I was you know generally on the money about this is going to be W's most profitable year ever, and the the results of today, uh, or the results of yesterday, just you know 
just affirmed that, that WWE's got about 70, just in the first half, the first six months of this year so far, has got $70 million in net income. The all-time record was 2018 when they did $99.6 million. So there, it, it seems like a foregone conclusion to me that they're going to break their all-time record, even when you adjust for inflation going way back to the late 90s and early 2000s. They're going to set their all-time record for profits uh, for, for the history of the company. Um, and, and again, the, I don't know if the analysts maybe didn't, didn't understand the degree to which W is saving money in the performance center mm-hmm. be, rather than, you know, uh, dealing with the expenses of, of broadcasting live from an arena. I'm guessing that that made made for uh, the, the difference in what analysts expected and then what W reported uh, aftermarket trading for W went up about three dollars uh, after the after the closing bell. Um but I, so the, the difference with Q1 is that there were only a few weeks in Q1 where W was dealing with this empty arena situation. So there was only a couple of weeks out of three months in Q1 for analysts to get an idea of you know what the financial impact was going to be, or in this case, the financial benefit. Uh, but this was obviously an entire quarter, you know, April, May, and June is Q2. And this was an entire quarter here where we're now we've been in this pandemic era. So n- numbers for the quarter, they made a net income of $43.8 million uh, off revenue of $223.4 million. So, uh, you know, comparing to last year, I mean, obviously profit through the roof in comparison, uh, revenue down. But I think that's the major takeaway is looking at how much they're saving doing this uh, very – a truncated version of producing television. They spent significantly less uh, savings of over $51 million when it came to expenses for uh, television and various production throughout this. And that kind of opens up the question, Brandon, like it's, we, there's no right or wrong answer, but just looking at the long-term future, if the WWE is taking certain lessons from this period of how we produce television costs that are, necessary versus costs that are just somewhat unnecessary when it comes to what we can save to produce our television at a level that we're meeting the demands of our contracts and how how much is spending that we need to necessarily reintroduce once fans are back and things are more normal than they are during this current period. Yeah, it it almost suggests that, you know, W should just find a a, a single central location, maybe at theme park or something to run their, their weekly TV out of, or run a lot of their weeks of TV out of. But, um, I, th- I think at, at, at a minimum, they need to do shows in front of fans. A, a lot of conversation on the call in the Q and a was asking about ratings and why ratings for Raw and SmackDown have declined. And Vince's best answer was that it, well, it's because of you know, live audience isn't there and that's why we're hurting in ratings. And they obviously do need to go back to a situation where they have, a large audience there that's reacting strongly. So while they're benefiting from this uh, at, at the moment with uh, way lower expenses by not broadcasting live and not broadcasting out of arenas, uh, I think in, in the long term they need to get back to arenas. Um, Vince kind of made it, it sort of hinted that they would figure out a way to get audiences back maybe sooner than people were expecting. And and it sort of reminds me of something that Stephanie McMahon said in that interview that she did with Ad Age that you you turned me on to that uh, she sort of hinted at, at some point in that interview that, you know, I, th- I think we're going to, I just want to put it out there that we're, we might be doing, you know, shows with audiences some, one way or another, you know, sooner than people expect. So I don't know what, what they've got in mind and maybe they're thinking about doing something outdoors or, I had somebody, I think just somebody on Twitter suggested to me that maybe they're going to go to Fight Island, and, uh, 
maybe, maybe they're going to make a deal with Dana and they're going to go to Fight Island. I don't, I don't know. Um, I've, I've heard NBA is doing some interesting things and Fox is talking about doing some interesting things with, you know, incorporating virtual fans or something. But, uh, or I don't know if just the McMahons think that COVID is going to be a, a less of a problem sooner than I don't know, I think it's going to be. I think we're going to not be in a situation in the United States for many months, if not for the rest of the year and beyond, where we're going to be able to run events at sporting arenas again. I don't think that's going to happen until there's a vaccine and maybe not after that. So yeah, I just thought that was odd that he thinks that he's going to be able to uh, bring audiences back. And I, I think he was feeling some pressure on the, the call from the analysts about, about ratings. Uh, I think like most notably, there was a, a question from Brandon Ross of Lightshed who had just written a, uh, a blog a, a couple days prior to the earnings report. Really, I, I think uh, letting a, Vince have it about creative and not you know, producing stars uh, and not uh, basically speculating that maybe at the current level of viewership, the way the viewership is going now, that maybe WWE is going to have a challenge uh, continuing to grow its TV rights fees. And, and I don't know about that, but uh, he, he did ask a number of questions, in, in, including, you know, is Paul Levesque going to be in it? Why isn't Paul Levesque in an elevated role uh, on the main roster, essentially? Uh, why, why do you think Raw and SmackDown haven't recovered uh, from COVID in the viewership, the way that NXT and AEW have. And, uh, I, th- I think the, the obvious difference between NXT and AEW compared to Raw and SmackDown is Raw and SmackDown are two programs that are controlled by Vince McMahon and NXT and AEW, uh, c- certainly AEW is not controlled at all by Vince McMahon, but NXT is largely, you know, uh, delegated to Paul Levesque. And I think that's sort of the, the distinction that's, uh, that should be made. And I think a lot of the analysts, you know, they, they study W business among a lot of other businesses. And, uh, you know, they're very well trained in how to, you know, fi- uh, analyze the finances of a company. Uh, but I don't think a lot of the analysts are paying attention to the content. And that's, I think if you would pay attention to the content, it raises some, uh, some concerns in the more long term about, you know, the, the consumer metrics have been down year over year for a few years. And just raises some questions about you know how popular W is going to be able to stay for the duration of its TV contracts and whether that's going to raise any problems uh, for WWE when they have to renew when they have to start talking about renewals of their TV contracts in a, in a couple of years. You know these contracts will go until September 2024, mm-hmm. so they're going to be you know through that time they're going to be increasingly profitable. You know next year is going to be even more profitable than this year. Yeah, and I think that that is kind of the the purgatory that the, like analysts are, are looking at this company in. like there is like this is a incredibly financially lucrative period for this company but it also comes across that you take out television rights it paints a very different picture uh, and those tv mm-hmm. deals aren't going away overnight but you have to look at these these trends are they are, is it going to be something in 4 years from now where Yes, popularity has declined, but still in comparison, uh, networks see value in WWE, or is it going to be something where these deals that they struck uh, that went into effect last year are going to be off the table? And that significantly alters the the state of this company. So I think that a lot of analysts, they don't want to be the sky is falling, but at the same time, like the ratings were clearly a big issue this quarter for analysts, whereas prior months, I think they were much more open to the the reasoning that Vince McMahon would give. And I, I saw a lot more pushback this time around. Yeah. Um, 
I think there's been a lot of discussion about what what matters when it comes to viewership, and that's been something I've been trying to talk with people about and understand. Uh, You know, the key demo is the most important uh, number, though, right? But uh, the um, I I think you know people have asked me at what point does does USA Network or does Fox really start to get concerned? And I I don't I don't think they're at that point right now. Um, I think maybe the metrics that we need to focus on more than, than maybe most people do is the rankings sort of where, you know, where, where does raw rank in, in the, in the USA network among all, all of its programs, uh, the press release that they put out yesterday says that raw is number one and NXT is number three on the USA network. Um, I think we need to look at, you know, where, where the programs rank on their night, you know, raw, raw gets reported into three hours. Uh, and usually those three hours are within the the top five or so. Maybe the, there's one hour out of the top five that's like number seven or something like that. So usually all three hours are within the top ten um, in the key demo, by the way. Um, SmackDown on Friday has been usually the number one show in the key demo, although it's usually well behind on total viewership, but still doing really well in the key demo. Um, and uh, NXT is well behind AEW. I think they usually end up somewhere in the 20s or the 30s. They have been staying in the top uh, 50 lately, though. But I, I think that's that's uh, that's a thing to focus on. If you look at the long view picture of of Raw viewership, especially because Raw hasn't had the benefit like SmackDown has had of jumping around to different networks. But if you look at the long picture of Raw viewership, you can see it going back to 2015 to the present that Raw's viewership has fallen in half. And, uh, and while it has, it's still over that time remained a highly ranked program. And I, and I, I think that's a, a major factor in that it's not necessarily about the decline, but where in the hierarchy a program like W Raw, you know, lies for the USA Network. Um, it's still a peak program in a, in a media environment where there's less and less peak programming. And, and that the peak programming that that, uh, that that is still around becomes increasingly valuable. Um, this one, one of the things that I think that was being speculated about in the Lightshed article about W Stock was that you know maybe we're you know going towards a future where that will be even more exacerbated. So not just will live content be extra valued, but the most popular live content will will be valued and maybe at the expense of the less popular live content content. So in other words, maybe there's a future where uh, NBCU and Fox don't want to bid highly for WWE because they're saving that money up for bigger sports like the NFL. So, I mean, that's just one possibility, uh, maybe a few years from now, but I, 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 I still see no reason to doubt that W is going to, at least at its current level of popularity, be able to continue to, to get, you know, really good TV rights fees, maybe at least at the level that they're at now. Um, but I think, the narrative that I've been thinking about a lot and I think is, is true over the last few months where we've been in this COVID era, that COVID has uh, sped up a lot of consumer trends. So maybe, you know, Raw is doing only like a million and a half viewers now for some of the hours. And maybe that would have taken a year or two. Maybe it would have taken a year or two to get there in a non-COVID, you know, uh, uh, timeline. But in this timeline, you know, people's routines have been disrupted. Not to mention that the wrestling programming is really weird because there's no audience there. So I think there's in in Raw and SmackDown's case, especially compared to AEW and NXT, uh, who are all dealing with this no crowd thing. But in case of Raw and SmackDown, I think a lot of the the attachments between those programs and their fans were looser than the attachments 
with the with the smaller audiences of NXT and AEW, which have stuck around more strongly. But the but the people who are what maybe watching Raw and SmackDown, you know, have have checked out of it at a, at a higher rate. And and compounding on that, I think COVID has disrupted people's life routines. At least for a few months here in the U.S., people were not going to work. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's sped up a lot of trends. How do you assess the the WWE's navigation of of reaching a younger audience? Like certainly that that's been a major discussion point about you know the the aging audience that the WWE has, and yet here is a company that is very diverse when it comes to their social media trends being one of the top YouTube channels that's that's out there. And, you know, a point you brought up being on different platforms that are going to reach audiences that maybe are not watching television. How equipped do you feel WWE is, WWE is right now with its programming that is creating newer fans or at least reaching younger fans? I, I guess, I mean, compared to most television, they do better than than most uh so say you know fox for example their audience is way younger than anything uh on friday night in prime time that they're up against um and, and raw does pretty well relative to other programming in terms of having a younger audience now that being said i think the, the creative direction of both of those programs doesn't make those programs very cool programs and i'm sure you know people are following it in alternate ways i think there's a lot of people who you know engage with WWE. To some extent, they have their, you know, they're sort of paying attention to it, but they're certainly not going to sit down on the couch and turn on linear TV and watch a three-hour uh, Raw, especially when in, when the content has, you know, the, when, I think when people have the expectation about what the content is and they don't see it as maybe as, as entertaining. I'm sure there are, there are, there definitely are people, you know, who, who interact with me and probably you who love WWE and love it the way it is. But I think there's um, just the, the, the nature of, of, but they haven't built any stars. There's not a lot of continuity. There's a lot of, you know, it, it, the programming feels uh, repetitive, a lot of rematches and stuff. I just think there's, um, it's not a cool show. NXT is a little bit, a little bit cooler. Um, and, and AEW is a little bit cooler. So I think these, you know, these programs do a better job of, well, as, as soon as I say that though, NXT has got the oldest median viewer, doesn't it? But, <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think, uh, there's a lot to be said about, just if you create stars, that's how you, especially if they're new, younger stars, that's how you uh, attract new audiences and probably young audiences as well. We knew that, you know, t- the television revenue, the fact that throughout the whole pandemic that they could run run all of these shows, they're making this enormous savings and they're taking in all of their television money. That was that was going to carry them this year. But we also saw some other other profit sectors uh, within the, the, this quarter. I mean, uh, consumer products. I mean, th- that was somewhat surprising to me. The fact that they was. that they saw such a growth in in that area during the pandemic. That we're not running live events, but that was, you know, that's an area that you would just think off the top of your head. Yeah, that's probably going to suffer during this time. What during a pandemic, it was the complete opposite. Yes. So W has three major divisions, and one of them is consumer products. Within consumer products, there's three segments that they report on. And that's product licensing, which is their licensed products that they don't make themselves, but they so things like video games and mobile games and action figures. But then there's venue merchandise, merchandise sold at the venue and and merchandise that they sell online. Uh, and obviously, there's no venue merchandise in Q2 because there was there were no events. So that that segment was literally at zero. And uh, I I had thought about this, you know, what's what's e-commerce? That's what they call their online merchandise segment. What's e-commerce going to be like? 
you know, in, in this quarter. And I kind of predicted that it would be down slightly quarter over quarter, especially when you consider, you know, maybe, you know, the economy is, is really taking a huge hit right now. Maybe consumers, you know, they're, they're not, they don't have as much money to spend. But actually, the, the segment was, I think it's $12.6 million in revenue, which is up from, usually, I, uh, usually that segment does something between like six and nine in, in a quarter like Q2. 6.6 so, last year. Yeah, up to 12.6. Yeah, yeah. So like they, they doubled. Right. So I guess, I don't know, maybe consumers are compensating for not, I don't know, I, that's just, you know, I, I, I can't f- figure out a, a story to tell myself other than it does seem like consumers are compensating. Um, I, I guess I don't feel like, well, I was going to buy X, Y, and Z merchandise at the show I was going to go to, but I didn't go. Or maybe there were just stronger promotions around WrestleMania time. Uh, I would expect to see it a little bit lower. I, I, I imagine WrestleMania had something to do with it. So it's replica belts, Brandon. People are stuck in I their know. homes and they can wear those things every day now. You don't have to have the the uh, the embarrassment of going outside wearing your replica belt. You can just <laughs> wear it around your house. I mean, this, this is the golden era of replica belt sales, perhaps. And did you know you can? There are financing options for your replica belts, so that if you, uh... I saw you tweet that that there are <laughs> there are options to basically put this on like a layaway if you if you want to <sighs> invest in a in a championship belt yeah. right now. Which I I am not an analyst, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be everyone's uh, financial advisor here. If you can't afford a replica belt right now, don't buy a replica belt right now. Good God, yeah, I. If you, if you if you if you can't afford, I don't really. What do they go for? Like three or five meats? I, I know the Bray thing was like five thousand dollars or something. But yeah, if if you if you don't have a couple hundred dollars to uh, to pay for a replica belt, maybe maybe the, you need to reevaluate your uh, financial decisions <laughs> um, rather than buying a belt. Um, but yeah, consumer products where uh, online merchandise was way up. I'm curious to see how it will be next quarter. I think it'll be down a little bit, but it does seem like people are are compensating somewhat for not being at, uh, at, at venues. One other thing we should pr- bring up here is that the, is this the stock buyback program? Did yes. you, did you catch that? Yeah. Um, so th- this was a, a $500 million program that they were ready to introduce. And then when the pandemic hit, they, they were pulling this and then, you know, they kind of have given the impression that they're going to be bringing it back, although not flat out stating it was, but but it looks like they're they're open to looking reintroducing that program. Yeah, so it was something that they were doing before COVID, which is like a stock buyback program. As far as I understand, is is something that a company does to buy back its own shares, which increases the demand for the shares, which increases the value of the shares. So that's good for investors. It's good for everybody that holds the stock. Um, it's something that, it, it's something that spends the company's cash though. So that's why they stopped it when COVID started to affect them. So that they would have more cash to, you know, have cash on hand in case they were, you know, in case they, their business wasn't doing well. Um, but now they, they said, you know, yesterday that they're considering options for, they're considering, I guess they're considering, they're trying to analyze, well, when is our stock, uh, when is our share price, in our opinion, undervalued? And when we think it's undervalued, we'll buy some stock. But the point is, uh, t- t- for anybody who thought that you know this this company was going to be um, you know in a, in bad shape or at risk of not being profitable because of COVID, and you know they, there's a lot of arguments around the time of April 15th when a lot of people were cut and a lot of employees were furloughed about, and there's even quotes from Paul Levesque about how you know it's 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 a difficult time. A lot of businesses are making difficult decisions right now, and you know you just just got to do it, I guess. But this company is so comfortable financially with. What, with the way that they are, even despite the pandemic, that they're considering using some of the cash that they have on hand 
to buy back their own stock, which is not something that a company that's, you know, in, in risk of losing money does. So, um, and I just think that, you know, if you were, and, and we all know that the, the, the talent who were laid off, uh, we know their name, names and faces, but I think it's, it's really, I, if, if I were a W employee who lost, you know, uh, their job because of a, the, this cost cutting, uh, I, w- I would be pretty upset to hear that the company is going to use some of the money that it's saving to possibly buy back its own stock. Yeah, and that's something that, like I never expect those kinds of subjects to be brought up in these calls because I really don't feel that not not it's good for investors. Exactly. Know? And it's like I feel very much it it sounds callous, but you know, it's the performers are just, you know, numbers on a page that are performing the work and it's those kinds of issues like ethical questions do not come up on these shareholders calls and right. maybe it's not even the forum for it, but I, I think that certainly people, you know, like you or I, that's certainly a, a subject that I look at as well in all of this is that in this quarter, these they didn't even enjoy the savings of all those cuts because these the main roster cuts at least were still on their 90-day no-compete. So there's further right. savings to come in the next quarter. Right. Yeah. I mean, as far as like ethical questions, um, like one of the things that I – found frustrating at first and not really understanding what was going on is that when I started listening to this stuff too, there's a lot of excitement around the W network. And I think analysts were especially optimistic and rosy, but, um, it, it, it felt too, too much like, you know, they were part of the team rather than, and I, I expected, you know, this sounds like a press conference to me. So I, I want people to ask the, the tough questions, but that's really not what this is, right? It's, it's analysts. And I, I think I see people sometimes, um, just thinking that these are callers or maybe these are shareholders, but these are analysts mm-hmm. whose job it is to understand the company and basically predict what the, what their finances are going to be. So, and I, but I think there have been a couple of times, um, questions, especially around Saudi Arabia about, um, you know, some, uh, Mike Hickey, who's one of the analysts once asked, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile, uh, you know, you've got this women's evolution and uh, you, you're really pro women. How you reconcile that with you know going to Saudi Arabia, where you know obviously they they treat women you know very differently, more restrictively. Um, so so there are questions like that sometimes, and and they they had to do that one conference call uh, the the day uh, the few days before they went and did Crown Jewel around the time of Jamal Khashoggi's killing, and uh, there was a lot of there was there were a couple uncomfortable questions being asked there, but but generally yes, I think it's not their job to. Um, get get the truth and get get to the bottom of the real story. It's their job to understand the company and to make accurate uh, estimates of of what the, the financial picture is going to be. Yeah, it, it, I was curious going into this. It wasn't a question I necessarily assumed would come, but given all the problems Major League Baseball is going through at the moment by diverting from the bubble system that the NBA has incorporated, that the NHL has gone through. And when you look at WWE, I mean, they're running a smaller scale version of what Major League Baseball is doing. It's not apples to apples, but you're Mm -hmm. flying in your performers from all over the place. It's not like they're quarantining once they get to Florida and they're in any kind of a bubble. It's And there was an outbreak that was not covered at all on this. It's more so WWE now has their policy in place where they can say we're doing proper COVID testing, we're wearing masks, we're socially distancing. Uh, but that was not the case a month and a half ago. Right. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I wrote a list of questions that I suggested, you know, here's some questions that analysts could ask, not expecting that they would. And then of course, you know, a lot of them didn't get asked, but um, just the, 
I, I would like to ask, you know, like what, uh, how many, how many wrestlers or how many people, cause it's not probably not just wrestlers, but it's crew as well. Probably we were at least at, at risk. Um, you know, how many people have tested positive for COVID? Um, you know, I, th- I think Stephanie sort of made it sound in that ad age uh, interview a week or two ago that, uh, you know, we're doing testing sort of just <laughs> making it sound as if they had always been doing testing when actually they were, they were the last to test among Let's you know, for example, they were last to test among AEW and UFC, and they only did it after there was a significant outbreak. So, but but again, you know, what uh, what financial bearing does that have on the company? I I've been arguing before they even started testing that they're really putting their talent at risk, which is really valuable to the company. You can say from you know, not even considering a, a moral argument that you're putting your talent at risk, and if your talent's at risk, they can't be on TV, and if they can't be on TV, they can't contribute to your show and your TV rights are your biggest, uh, source of revenue. So, um, so you're putting that at risk, but, um, at least they're doing testing now and, uh, you know, but generally the, the investors, uh, I don't think have been hurt by this. If, if anything, you've seen Roman Reigns just decide to sit it out. He's the, the biggest full-time star, I guess, that they have at this point, but he's decided to sit out, you know, sort of preemptively for all this. Uh, moving on to the WWE network, uh, they, they reported uh, total paid subscribers of just under 1.7 million as of June mm-hmm. 30th. And this is the area of the business that I would say we could see the biggest philosophical shift in the wake of Michelle Wilson and George Barrios leaving the company uh, because uh, in the, the shareholders conference that took place in mid-July, they kind of just snuck it in there. The fact that the tiered system is – been shelved at this point they have gone they've dropped the 30-day free trial and introduced the free tier and i guess based on these results thus far that has been a winning strategy based on the early returns that we've seen yeah they've only been so that started on june 1st the free tier so and that was talked a little bit on about on the uh annual shareholders uh call on july 16th uh and so and we've seen uh, the emergence of this J.R. Donlin, who's the executive vice president of Advanced Media Group, which is a strange subtitle. I don't know what that means, Advanced Media Group. But anyway, he seems to be very involved in the network, or at least this free tier. And uh, I don't know, they're generally optimistic about how the free tier is going. They say they, they, you know, they've only been doing it for now is two months. Um, but they, they say they're seeing some conversion there. I guess the, the idea is that you use the free tier to, first of all, convert people to being paid subscribers. You're doing away with the, uh, the the trial that way too, but you, you want to convert people into being paid subscribers. But then also, you can get some ad revenue out of out of these people by you know putting ads on on this thing. Um, so I guess that's what they're trying to do there. Um, there was some talk uh, on the on the call about you know what the value still is of selling the network or the network content, or more specifically, probably the pay per views to a major streaming player, uh, maybe ESPN Plus, maybe Peacock. There's some talk about Amazon Prime even. There's some talk about whether um, – it, it seems pretty imminent uh, when they did their call in February before the pandemic really started to hit. Uh, they, there was some, there, it seems pretty eminent that they were going to sell to maybe ESPN Plus or maybe NBCU, the, the pay-per-views off of the network. Uh, Vince made it sound like you might even see it before you know, Q1 was over, which would have been March 31st. Obviously, that never happened, and, and COVID really started to take effect in the middle of March – and uh, they've said publicly that, you know, the the, uh, the negotiations continue, uh, which I don't know. I, I take to mean the negotiations have paused, at least for now. 
as the streaming players maybe don't want to commit uh, a lot of you know guaranteed money, don't want to get themselves on a contract uh, with WWE when maybe WWE's business is uncertain and may, when maybe money is tight for any of these companies as well. Uh, but there was some talk about, there was a question about whether WWE thinks that the, the value for the network content on a major streaming player is as high as it was uh, when they were thinking about it earlier. And uh, I know uh, interim CFO Frank Riddick just sort of said that uh, you know, he thinks that uh, there's going to be winners and losers in the streaming market. And I, I took what he was saying to mean that you know, there's a lot of competition among streaming players. And I, I think maybe NBCU's Peacock is really going to need some, need a lot of things to try to set itself apart. And you know, they had originally planned on putting a lot of uh, content from the Olympics on Peacock, which just launched fully uh, this month in July. Uh, and there's obviously the Olympics are not happening uh, this summer. Uh, so I think they're in a, in a position to really need something special, like maybe W content to, to uh, attract subscribers. So I don't know. I, I think that'll happen. I, and I think uh, maybe the best option for W in a, in a, scenario where they don't have pay-per-views on the network. I think there's still a market for the network to have a few, maybe 100,000 subscribers who will continue to subscribe to the network for $10 a month, if only for the library content and maybe maybe the takeovers stay on the network. I think that's a, that's a there will be a ton of upheaval and a ton of cancellations, of course, but I think there's probably still a, a, a very profitable way to keep the network going and to keep a lot of subscribers who will you know, who will find it still a bargain to have the library and maybe to have other content like the takeovers and uh, maybe 205 Live and whatever else they've got on there. Just when you look at the professional wrestling audience as a whole, like such a big asset is the fact that you have an audience that is trained for once a month that they pay for the big event. And when we've seen how much success UFC has had during the pandemic on ESPN Plus, it makes you wonder, like, is WWE content more valued at this point that I'm sure an ESPN plus or a competitor would, would love to have, you know, a destination program that you have an audience base that is willing to pay for a product once a month. Yeah. I, th I think the, the, the waters have really been muddied. I, I know I did, I did a podcast a, f a few months ago talking about how I think maybe, maybe pay-per-view is, is the best way to monetize peak events. Um, AEW's had some success in, in that regard. Um, at the same time, W network has taught people that, you know, a peak event is really worth no more than $10. Now, on the other hand, AEW and others have sold pay-per-views for $50, and AEW seems to be doing roughly 100,000 buys for every show that they do. Um, I guess in particular, obviously, the problem in W's case is trying to transition people out of the habit of, you know, just paying for pay-per-views as part of a bundle, you know, at $10 a month, uh, where they get a pay-per-view along with a ton of other stuff on demand. Um, and you know, how much customer upheaval is there going to be if they, for example, put the pay-per-views onto ESPN Plus and ask people to pay $50 or $60 or more for them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's, I mean, I think Todd Martin you know, brought up this point that it's a good uh, customer break point you know, for a lot of people to be like, well, I don't know, you're really changing. And I think it's a lot of friction for the customer. You're sort of changing the method at which you know, people have to make the purchase and, and consume the content. So when you've already got an audience that maybe isn't as engaged or isn't doesn't have a lot of goodwill with your product, it may be just that you know the the incon inconvenience enough to be like, well, you know, maybe I won't uh, 
you know, it's, it's sort of a non-decision. You know, you, you don't take the step to sign up for ESPN Plus or whatever it is. And then you sort of disengage or engage less with, with the, the product. So I, I think it, there's a lot of risk there for WWE if they change the way that they sell the pay-per-view. And at the same time, I think when you've got a company that's run by Vince McMahon and uh, particularly the creative is run by Vince McMahon and I don't see any end in sight to, I don't see any way that the, the you know, raw SmackDown content, main roster content is going to get that much better uh, while he's in, in creative control. He's not going to leave creative control. He's not going to hand it over to somebody else. So if that's the situation that you're in, I think, and this isn't certainly not the way they're calculating it, but if that's the situation that you're in, I think they look at it more as like, well, this is just the best we can do in terms of attracting an audience, the size of the audience. But if that's the situation that, that you're in, I think you're just in a, in a better, uh, you're better off to just try to get as much guaranteed money as you can, de-risk it, as they say, and, uh, you know, rather than uh, even, yeah, I think part of the, the, the idea of the network was to de-risk pay-per-view and that, so rather than selling a pay-per-view individually, where one month you do a lot of buys and another month you don't, you just get everybody to commit to a recurring $10 a month and then they just sort of, you know, set it and forget it. Uh, but, but even this would, you know, sort of eliminate that consumer issue and just go right, you know, go business to business in that you just get somebody like ESPN to give you maybe a hundred million dollars a year for this. And then you don't have to worry about whether or not your pay-per-view is going to perform well and, and attract an audience. And, um, I think that may not be a good idea uh, economically in terms of motivation, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, creating the right kind of economic motivation that compels decision makers to create great shows because you sort of just even you know, the talk when the network starts to launch is that, well, they're not going to try to put on good shows anymore because they, they know that they've got everybody's 10 bucks and they're not going to try to, to pop a, a pay-per-view buy anymore. I think that would be even more exasperated when you don't even have to necessarily attract subscribers. You're just trying to, you just have to provide content just like they do with Raw and SmackDown. So it's a, uh, I don't know, I thought that's, that's kind of how I see it. It's kind of a bleak picture if you're somebody who wants to be content to get better. But I think that's, that's probably the situation they're going to end up in within a year or two. Do you think it's a more effective strategy trying this version of the, the WWE network where we're going to try and cast a wider net to bring in free subscribers in the hope that we can convert a percentage of them versus the tiered system where it's kind of coming to the realization we've got this number of people that will pay for this service. Let's try and get more money out of the existing subscriber base. I, I guess doing the free version of the network where you don't even have to log in, I think that's how it works, right? You don't even have to log in. Uh, so that removes friction. So I don't even have to create a user account to try this thing out. Uh, and then maybe I sample it and then maybe I like it. That's, that seems like a, a smart strategy. I, you know, as you said earlier, they've apparently decided not to do the premium tier. Um, I don't know. I, obviously this service is way underpriced. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, sort of problems with that. Like I said earlier, in terms of teaching the audience that eh, an event is worth 10 bucks at most. Um, but, uh, I, I think there's at, at, at the least, they probably should be, you know, charging more for this at least over time if they're going to continue to uh, to to put pay per views on there. But uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll we'll see. I think. Um, but but your question is just like is is the is the free tier a better idea than than the trials? Yeah. 
Um, I guess it's it's at least something different. I don't I don't know uh, if their conversion rates are going to be any better, but it's 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 at least a way to attract more advertising revenue. So it's it's probably a more it's it's probably a better prospect than continuing on with the free trials. I think the numbers are encouraging. I mean, granted, I mean it's only been a month we've or two months, I guess we've we've seen of this at, at this point. But I, I think one of the biggest issues is trying to create new fans in in any part of their business because I think that's a really attractive part of AEW is that yes they have a yes they have dark and they have you know they're introducing uh, the new women's tournament but it's pretty much two hours you can follow AEW for two hours a week and for WWE the jumping on point is the three hour flagship show on Monday nights not to mention two on Friday and if you want to be an NXT follower it's it's an enormous commitment I don't think they're creating a whole lot of new fans it's just trying to maintain the existing fans fan base and just curb off erosion. So I look at the network that this is at least a part of their business where it seems that, yes, we could just double down on our existing subscribers and get more revenue out of them. This is an idea. Hey, let's try and make this attractive to people that either dumped the service long ago or have never really sampled it. They were scared off by a $10 commitment. Yeah, in a lot of ways, they've you know, WWE has sort of entered into a situation where it's not necessarily great for creating new fans, but it it's better than the alternative in, in terms of like having a three hour RAW is way more lucrative for them than having a two hour RAW, right? Mm-hmm. By probably probably thirty three percent. So, but that's maybe that creates a um, you know a, a hurdle towards becoming a fan, um, but it, but it gives them a lot more money. I think on the other hand, I think it's it all comes down to the, the quality of the content. I think if you create stars and you create matches and you know you, you create shows that people want to see, they'll they'll come and see it, or maybe they won't watch all three hours of it, but they'll watch an hour or two or a few segments in, in greater volume than they are now. Well, as we wrap up here, Brandon, uh, this is also probably the the shortened era has come to an end of the Frank Riddick transition period yeah, because right. i would imagine that uh christina salen their incoming cfo that starts on monday probably going to be the uh the new voice of a lot of these uh quarterly earnings calls yeah it'll be really interesting uh she's so she's a former etsy, uh cfo for etsy and she has a lot of uh, experience she even has experience as being a, a stock analyst a media analyst she has some experience in consumer products as well so she seems like a good fit uh, we'll see. I imagine we'll see uh, her in all the roles that George Berrios was in terms of being the the public face for investors, and being you know, we'll get, probably hear her at conferences, at the, uh, the the tech and media conferences that are webcast uh, on corporate.w.com that everybody listens to along with me, I'm sure. Uh, but that, that'll that'll be interesting. Uh, we'll see. I, I like I don't have a, a great idea of like what kind of uh, you know, CFO she'll be or how she'll be different from from Berrios. But uh, it's yeah, an empty we'll, we'll bingo see. card, Brandon. It is. People have been bringing up bingo to me. So we <laughs> used to uh, create a bingo card for George Barrios, who had had a lot of interesting buzzwords. Not not just the kind of buzzwords that you're used to hearing on W television, but he had his own business speak and bu- business buzzwords. So we'll see. I, I but I do think you know Barrios used fewer buzzwords as time went on, and he became maybe more familiar with wrestling and the content. And uh, hopefully it's not because he felt shame when if uh, if the Barrios bingo card was passed around at Titan Tower. But uh, no, I, I think it's really interesting. As far as I know, she's the first C- uh, female CFO that W has ever had. 
and it seems like you know something that some, somebody like Stephanie McMahon is really excited about. So we'll see how it goes. My final question. Uh, I was away this past weekend, and during my, my time away, I read Ron Hutchison's Pain, Torture, oh. Agony book, and you were mentioned in this particular I book, was? Uh, for working some Apocalypse Wrestling Federation <laughs> shows in the late 2000s, and I was just curious if you have any memories of, I imagine these shows were in Whitby, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, That's any, right. Any memories of uh, working for Ron? Because his shows were the very first independent shows I ever went to in uh, early oh, 2000 wow. at this bar called Cactus Pete's, and I just was curious if you were uh, had any strong memories of the revamped AWF in the uh, late 2000s. Right. Well, I remember hearing before I ever worked uh, for Ron. I, I remember hearing stories about AWF, and because like Beth Phoenix had you know something to do with part of our early training for people who I started with, and uh, I think she was the AWF champion. I think at one point. Do you, yeah, do you they, know about – were you there for that? There was – yeah, she was there. Like there was a period where like Gail Kim was working there consistently, Tracy Brooks, Beth Phoenix. Like it, it became like a pretty like, – like a hotbed for you know f- female wrestlers to uh, come over. They brought Sumi Sakai over once like all the way from oh. Japan just to work like this small AWF show. So it was – it kind of had its, its time just for uh, an outlet for female performers. Yeah, so I, I – heard some stories about it or whatever and it was a, a, a promotion that i was aware of and i think i was i was wrestling locally here sort of in the niagara falls area uh, in new on the new york side and um i think ron hutchinson came to to the show that i was on and uh you know rarely especially these days do you get you know a promoter like approaches you about a booking especially at that you know when you're sort of at the the entry level but uh I don't, I don't remember if he talked to me after the show or, or what, but I ended up working for him. I, th- I think other others, you know, who I was close with in the Buffalo area who were wrestlers were working for him too. And, uh, uh, we, you know, I, I only worked a couple of shows for him, but, uh, it was at like a, a comedy club, I think. And, uh, I, I worked two shows for him I, on the one I wrestled, uh, Mastiff, Will Calrissian. And that was a good match, I think. I remember being uh, told that we had to be careful about the uh, the projector that was up on the on, on the ceiling that we could not climb to the top rope in that corner. But uh, but no, those were good shows. And Ron, Ron's always been a super nice guy to me. You know, he's a really great promoter to deal with, and he's always you know he's he's one, one of those people who's always like you know every year or so or you know, year or two you'll you get a message from him being like, hey, just wanted to check in with you, see how you're doing. He's he's a super nice guy. Yeah, I've really never met the guy as much as we were both like here in the same city and I've gone to his shows and stuff, but he it really underrated a uh, trainer and I, mm. I would definitely check out his book if you want to like grab it on Kindle or something. It's like a real fun read about a guy that did a lot of interesting things in his career from, you know, working undercard WWF shows at the gardens here in Toronto and he works Black Saturdays, you know that? He, I did not realize that his he was there on the undercard or uh, yeah, on that very first show after Vince took over yeah. the time slots. That's a real interesting trivia question that he's attached to. Yeah, so you think he's like putting over the Iron Sheik on on Black Saturday, on the, which is the first WF show after they took over from from Georgia, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, Brandon, uh, I want to thank you very much as always uh, for joining us here. We could not we could not put a bow on uh, Q two from the WWE without chatting with. Brandon Thurston. And uh, what is coming up from uh, WrestleNomics? I know you already have a show up going very in-depth into uh, a lot of these subjects coming out of the uh, the earnings report and call, but uh, the floor is yours where our listeners can go follow the great Brandon yeah. Thurston. 
You can follow me at Brandon Thurston. I, I also tweet from the WrestleNomics account at WrestleNomics. I write stuff on WrestleNomics.com, which I'm just, I'm insane. It's, it's ad free. There's no paywall. I don't know what I'm doing, but it's free and you can, you can read it. And, uh, if, uh, I, th- I think I'm the person in the world outside of Stanford, Connecticut, uh, who's, who looks at WSEC filings, uh, maybe more than anybody else. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a, a survey that I did, Pro Wrestling Favorability Survey. I will am gradually working on that. Should have something on that eventually. But yeah, every week dropping, every Saturday morning, there is a, a WrestleNomics podcast that is a result of me locking myself in a walk-in closet and talking <laughs> talking to myself uh, to it at various intervals for about five hours as I research stuff and, and, and all that. So yeah, that's a, uh, you can uh, yeah follow me up, Brandon Thurston, go to wrestlenomics.com. Wrestlenomics.com chat, uh, check out all of his great work. It's a vital resource for anyone looking to uh, dissect the industry uh, at a, at a very minute detail, which Brandon does a fantastic job of also translating a lot of stuff for just basic understanding of uh the wwe's business so thanks as always brandon uh i hope we can do this again uh sometime soon as we enter into the uh christina salen era of wwe yes i can't wait you, you guys have been doing a great job with post wrestling too i've been listening oh thank you very much well everyone we'll be back later tonight waiting will will return uh on rewind to smackdown and we will speak with all of you later tonight